This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, for the next hour, we'll be taking emails, text messages, and uh, live calls here to the studio. If you'd like to reach us locally, the number is, again, 525-1859. If you have a question concerning your study of God's Word or its application or some uh, special ministry or family issue that you'd like biblical counsel on, if we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone and call us. We have a lot of Internet listeners as well, and they can access us as, through 877. Uh, the call letter is WAGP980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it either way. People email us uh, each week as well. And the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here. It is indeed, Pastor. And um, we have a number of questions that have already come in, so let's get to them. Uh, A week ago Sunday, you were preaching on the apostate church um, from the book of Jude. And uh, you were talking about certain preachers. The question came in, was the preacher truly saved to begin with? And if not, if he repented and was born again, should he ever be in a teaching position or a preacher in the church? Well, it's a good question. And it's really a question that concerns as much as anything, the nature of an apostate. If someone is truly an apostate, let me, let me just define terms here first. Uh, the term apostate comes from the Greek word apostasia, and it literally means to fall away. And it's used in the New Testament of someone who has been outwardly uh, Christian in their profession of faith, but not inwardly born again. Of course, there are people like that who fill pews in churches all across America who are not necessarily an apostate, but they are outwardly Christian, but they've never had a second birth. The difference with an apostate is he's heard the gospel, understands the gospel. And of course, in the issue that we're dealing with in the book of Jude, he deals not just with preachers, but he deals with the farmer. He deals with just, you know, ordinary everyday people as well as pastors, so to speak. Um, But the issue there is someone who has come to the edge, understands salvation, and does not respond, and he apostatizes. The word apostasy, it literally means to fall away. He falls away from the faith. And of course, uh, these people, Jude warns us that we are to be on the alert because he said, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to all the saints. Uh, This does not mean that everyone, say, in a cult is an apostate. Uh, Sometimes the cult was the very first person to reach the individual. 
they were the persons who um, came and knocked at their door and said, hey, we have a real meaning in life. Come to our place. And and the person ends up embracing it. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean they're an apostate. Many of those people are very open. So we have a number of former Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who are members of our church who have found Christ as their personal Savior. Uh, But then there are people like Joseph Smith who uh, grew up in a church that actually preached the gospel. He heard all about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, actually made an outward profession that he was a Christian, but then ended up rejecting the faith. He fell away from the faith. And of course, as much as anything, his decision was driven by licentiousness, which is one of the characteristics of an apostate teacher. They're driven by their own personal lusts. And so he wasn't satisfied with the concept of one man and one woman. Uh, It's estimated he had as many as 40 wives. Uh, He was an apostate. And again, if someone is a true apostate, uh, they are not going to come to faith in Christ. When Jude describes their ultimate state, he says that they have a reservation in the outer darkness. Uh, These are people who are headed for hell. Um, Peter describes a similar type of uh, scenario. Second Peter 2, that whole chapter parallels the book of Jude. Uh, those are companion chapters. And of course, he describes uh, these who uh, speak out arrogant words of vanity. They entice others by their, with fleshly desires, by sensuality. Those who have barely escaped from the ones who live in error. They promise people freedom, but they are themselves slaves of corruption for what a man is overcome by this he's enslaved. And then he makes this incredible statement for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and savior, Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. And so it's a very fascinating statement because it's very um, illustrative as to the very nature of an apostate. These are some people who have escaped the defilements of the world through a knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there are people like that who come into the church. They are salted. They are lighted. Um, and their life apparently seems to change. But they're not born again. They're experiencing the influence of the body of Christ. And that's one of the things that we're able to do as we truly live for Christ. Light dispels darkness. Salt preserves. It preserves righteousness. And there are people who come into the church, much like Jesus described in in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8 and in verse 13. Uh, it's It's an interesting verse because many of these people, we would say, oh, they're born again Christians, but they seem to go south. And of course, the Arminians within the church would say they lost their salvation. And Jesus would just simply say that they never had it. But there in the parable of the sower and those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. So they have an emotional experience. They have an intellectual ascent, um, but they have no firm root in themselves. They believe for a while. So they make a profession of faith, may join your church. The pastor may baptize them because he can only go by what they say. Uh, But uh, they believe for a while and in time of temptation, they fall away. And so there are people like this, you know, and sometimes uh, even as a pastor, you know, I'll meet people who, 
you know, have uh, been involved in a wicked lifestyle and they've repented and they've gone back to the wicked lifestyle and they've repented. And uh, but there comes a point where they cross a line known only to God where they cannot cross back. And so their second state is worse than the first. And it says uh, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Why is that? Well, for the simple reason, the more revelation you have, the more accountable you are to whom much is given, much is expected. Um, And so it would have been better never to have known it because hell's hotter for these people. I don't know how God works that out practically, but somehow he does. Hell is awful for anyone who goes there, but not the same for everyone who goes there. It would have been better not to have known it than having known it to turn away from the Holy Commandment. And so it says it's happened to them according to a true proverb. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Now you can clean up a pig for the county fair and get him all spruced up and put a ribbon around his neck and spray some perfume on him. But because his nature is that of a pig, he's always going to go back into the, into the mud. And if a person's nature is not changed, he'll go back. And that's what an apostate does. He goes back. And the amazing thing is, is that we see sometimes even in pulpits in America, People who apostatize, they look very evangelical, talk evangelical, open a Bible. Uh, One of the apostates that Jude illustrates, as does Peter, is a a prophet in the Old Testament who is a false false prophet. He speaks of the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. And if you read Balaam, initially everything he preaches is true. Uh, The Spirit of God comes upon him and he preaches what's true, but he was never saved. And in the end, he ends up rejecting the faith and actually encourages people to do what an apostate often does. He endorses licentiousness. So we have so-called evangelical preachers who seemingly preach the truth, and now they are departing away from it, and they're telling people that same-sex marriage is okay, or if you want to have extramarital relationships, well, God understands, and if you want to have premarital relationships, well, you know, this is okay, and And these are people who were once, you know, conservative evangelical pastors. And there are some out there right now that I'm watching very closely because I think, I fear they're going to go south on us and just totally depart from the faith. But this is what apostates do. And so this is a reality that God wants us to be alert to so that we can respond accordingly. So uh, you mentioned, well, what if this guy repents? Well, if he repents, it meant it just means he was never an apostate. If he truly repents and, and, and he shows the marks of genuine conversion, and this is why we need to look carefully because sometimes someone looks like they're converted, but if you look at them through God's magnifying glass, and that's what the whole book of Jude is about, you see they're really not. There's some error in there that we just missed because we didn't listen or look very carefully. But if they truly repent, then sure that God could use them in a pastorate situation, not as a new believer, because uh, a new believer is uh, potentially going to be entrapped by the devil and become conceited if you give him a place of leadership before he's ready. Not to mention it takes time to become sound in doctrine and other things. So if he was a pastor, but not a true believer, and then ends up finding Christ, he needs to grow for some years before he can be considered uh, for the pastorate. 
all things being equal in meeting, of course, the qualifications outlined in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next listener dictated their question. They want to know, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, who are the saints that will be alive during the millennium? Is it a partial resurrection of some saints who come back during the millennium, or is it all the saints who have been resurrected? Well, it's a good question, and there's a series of events that unfold, beginning with the rapture, the catching up of the church. Uh, the word comes from a Latin word, which is a Greek translation of caught up, for we shall all be caught up. So the Lord first comes for his saints. He, we meet him in the air. Then he comes back with his saints where he literally comes to the earth. His feet, the Bible says in the book of Zechariah chapter 14, will touch the Mount of Olives. The Revelation tells us that he will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. The concept of Messiah, Christ, ruling on the earth is not a New Testament concept. It's taught in the Old Testament. God promised it to Israel. It's never been fulfilled, but it's going to be fulfilled The length of that reign is revealed only in the New Testament. It's a thousand years long. And so God first comes, he catches up the church, a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation period begins to unfold. Uh, That is culminated by the second coming of Christ. Now, again, terminology here is important because sometimes when we use the term first coming or second coming, people mean different things by it. Evangelical Christians like the first coming of Christ, people, <laughs> excuse me, usually in that term include the incarnation, Bethlehem, his ministry uh, on the earth, his death, burial, and resurrection. We package that whole thing under the first coming program, not just Bethlehem, but his whole life and ministry until the ascension. So sometimes when people refer to the second coming of Christ, they're talking about the second coming program. And they mean uh, the rapture of the church, the great tribulation, the visible return of Christ to the earth, the millennial reign. And so sometimes people mean different things by it. But I do think there is a clear distinction in the Bible between the catching up of the church, what we call the rapture from the Latin Vulgate, and the second coming where at the end of seven years, Jesus literally comes to the earth. In the Olivet Discourse, which is a passage of scripture that deals with the second coming, that is the events that take place at the end of the great tribulation period, Jesus makes this statement. It's a verse that's often been misquoted in the last 30 years, largely due to a a popular book that a guy named Hal Lindsey wrote in the 1970s called The Late Great Planet Earth. Now, he went to the same seminary I did many, many years before and uh, he was never taught this at Dallas Seminary. Uh, but, you know, Hal, Hal is an interesting fellow. Um, he's still producing books, as far as I know. Um, he, he really lost credibility in a lot of people's mind. I think it was somewhere after the fourth or fifth marriage. I'm not sure. But it says, then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. And so these taken um, 
are those who are taken away in a judgment. Of course, he, he likens this to the coming of, uh, for, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Um, and, and then he, he then says two men uh, in the field, one taken, one left. So just as the people were carried away in judgment at the great flood, and Noah was left to, to enter into a brand new world. So the picture we find by typology in the Old Testament will be fulfilled when Jesus comes the second time at his second coming. People are taken away. It has nothing to do with the rapture. The rapture is not even in Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, there are no signs for the rapture. Uh, the return of Christ is imminent. It could happen at any moment. It could happen before I finish the next sentence, if God wants it to, um, the return of Christ could happen at any moment. There's all kinds of things that have to happen for the second coming to take place. And so there are people when the second coming takes place who are carried away in judgment and others who are what we might call tribulation saints who will enter the millennial reign of Christ and rule with him for a thousand years. By the way, uh, what's very interesting, if, again, you just take a the plain reading of Scripture, what sometimes people refer to as a literal hermeneutic. And again, when we speak of a literal interpretation of the Bible, we recognize there's metaphors and figure of speech, figures of speech that we need to, you know, properly understand in their context. Uh, but sometimes, you know, when you use the term literal interpretation, people make you think, well, you're just stupid. And, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't use the term. Let's just say a historical, grammatical, contextual uh, interpretation of the Bible or the plain reading of scripture. It's obvious when there is a figure of speech that God is using when he said, I am the bread of life or I am a door. He doesn't mean he's a literal door or a literal loaf of bread. He's using figures of speech. But today, more and more, when you take a stance on some moral issue, people will come back and say, well, you don't take the Bible literally, do you? Yeah, I do. When, when, when God says that, you know, for a man to lie with a man is an abomination, I, I literally take it that way, just like I literally took the question you just asked me. So, um, but when you just take the plain interpretation of Scripture— it becomes apparent that the rapture and the second coming cannot be the same event. Now, in some people's theology, it is. Uh, the Presbyterian Church across America is typically amillennial. What that means is that Messiah will not literally rule and reign on the earth. And amillennialism comes out of Roman Catholicism. And some of the Protestant reformers who are former Catholics uh, took the Roman Catholic doctrine and just put a different spin on it. So in Roman Catholicism, they argue that they are the one true church. And men like Luther and Calvin said, well, no, they're not the one true church. Um, the body of Christ is, not just some physical organization that you may have your membership with. And that is true, that the, the one true church is made up of those who are genuinely born again, not necessarily someone who's a member of a, a particular denomination. Uh, but lay that aside, Catholics, what drove that doctrine was their rejection that God had a plan for the people of Israel. And so the Catholic Church says that they are the new Israel. 
and some of the Protestant reformers took that and they just put a different spin on it. So in a Presbyterian theology, again, there's always exceptions to the rule, but I'm just speaking the norm here. For them, the next event is the second coming and all of God's people will be taken up in a resurrected body and carried into heaven. There's no literal reign of Christ upon the earth. Well, to do um, to come to that conclusion, you have to argue away a lot of scripture in the Old Testament that speaks of Messiah's kingdom. And again, when you look at the way prophecy was fulfilled during the first coming of Christ, it was all literally actually fulfilled when, when God said that Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's where he was born. He wasn't born in Jerusalem, which, by the way, the Book of Mormon teaches. No, he was born in Bethlehem, just as the prophets had predicted. And so, again, when you literally interpret scripture, it's clear. And since all the prophecies for the first coming were literally actually fulfilled, why should we take the prophecies for the second coming to be any different? So when God speaks of a um, peace between man and the creation, where a baby can play next to the cobra's nest and not be harmed, that's never been fulfilled but it's going to be literally fulfilled during the messianic reign of the Lord Jesus. And so the pre-tribulational rapture, there's not any single verse that teaches it. I mean, there are, but when you put all the verses together, it becomes really clear. It's like the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, You might be hard pressed to say, well, this verse all by itself teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. But when you put all of the verses together, it's really clear that God exists as one in three persons. There's a threeness dimension to the oneness of God. The triunity of God is plainly taught. And so if uh, the church is caught up and we're all brought up in resurrected bodies, then when we get a resurrected body, we have a body like Christ that can no longer sin. And if that's true, then how can you have any kind of sin at the end of the millennial reign? And so some people just get rid of the millennium altogether. But if the church is caught up prior to the second coming and we come back with Christ in resurrected bodies, and then those who have survived the great tribulation period who did not take the mark of the beast or worship the antichrist, Uh, And they enter, they are left to rule with Christ along with the church in our resurrected bodies. And they have an extended life frame, um, much like people did before the flood. And they have children and grandchildren and great, great, great grandchildren and so forth. Then you have room for the kind of rebellion that is described at the end of the millennial reign of Christ in Revelation chapter 20, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations. How can he deceive anyone if we're all in resurrected bodies? Because we can't sin once we're in our resurrected body. Well, that's because these people aren't in resurrected bodies. These people were not raptured. These are tribulation saints who enter the tribulation in their natural bodies, just like you have a regenerated body if you've been born again, but you still have a sin nature. And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that your children are or your children's children will be. And so it will be during the reign of Messiah, there will be people who will have children and great-grandchildren, and they will have to make individual decisions for Christ. And it really reminds us of how fallen man is 
that even with the devil locked up for a thousand years and Christ himself ruling on the earth, not everyone will receive him as Lord and make a personal decision. You say, how is that possible? Just like it was possible when he came the first time. He did miracles right in front of people and many didn't respond. He came to his own, his own received him not. So people will make decisions against Christ then. So I hope that helps. If you want to study the issue in great detail, you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org and consider taking the eschatology course. Eschatos is a Greek word for last things, last times, as we uh, popularize the word. And so it's a study of the last times. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Last week, a caller said she was a bit confused because she's been hearing about people, especially in the Middle East, who have come to Christ because Christ has come to them in dreams. Her confusion is, how do we discern through the Holy Spirit if these conversions exist because they were brought about in this way versus uh, Scripture being closed? Well, okay, I think I know where you're going with that. You're saying that if someone has a dream or a vision that it's, a new form of revelation, so to speak. And since the canon of scripture is closed that you can't add to it. Okay. There's a difference between God giving direction through a dream versus a verse of scripture. So there are places in the world where people have had dreams. Is this normative? Certainly not. Uh, There was a time in, in human history before the Bible was completed when God often spoke through dreams and visions, uh, Joel, the prophet predicts that this will happen in the last days. When did the last days begin? Well, Peter quotes the prophet Joel chapter two on the day Pentecost came. Uh, it, it, we've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost. Now I believe we're in the last of the last days. And so when God gave new revelation, in a dramatic way, as he did on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, this is a fulfillment of what God said would happen in the last days as spoken by the prophet Joel. So there were some dreams that are recorded in the new Testament that were revelationary. They were direct words from God. That's one type of dream or vision, but it's an entirely different kind of dream or vision. If someone's living in India And they have a dream during the night that they're supposed to go to such and such a place to see a movie. And they walk three days to get there and they watch the Jesus film and they hear the plan of salvation preached through the Jesus film. People don't get saved through dreams. Now, there was a famous boxer. I can't remember his name back in the late 70s. I was a relatively new Christian. And he said he got saved through this dream and so on. And Jesus was his savior. And. Three years later, he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. I think he became a Buddhist. Um, But that's not what we're talking about. But there are times when God directs people to a place where they can hear the gospel through a dream. I mean, through a preacher. So the dream becomes a vehicle to get them to the place where they can hear the revelation of God. Again, I don't think that's normative, but because God loves the salvation of souls. Sometimes God will go to great extremes to get the gospel. So even with the Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 or Cornelius, as we tend to anglicize it in America, um, 
even with that particular individual, an angel of God came to him, appeared to him, and gave him direction to go to a certain street. And he went there, and of course, uh, God is at the same time teaching Peter some lessons about how he is to relate to Gentiles. But nonetheless, Peter opens the scriptures and preaches the plan of salvation to Cornelius and all of his friends and relatives that gather that day. So God didn't give the gospel uh, to the, this man through an angel, but God gave direction through the angel, much like he'd give direction through a dream or could. And again, I don't think it's normative, but God may do that if he so chooses, but he still uses this simple foolishness of preaching, if I can quote the Apostle Paul, to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. So I hope that helps. It's a, it's a fine distinction because there are some dreams that are of a revelational content in the Bible, like some that Daniel have, and that is very different from a dream that does not give anything uh, concerning revelation from God or about God or how to be saved by God but just simply God using it as a means of guidance. If it's true, then it's not true, like you like to say. Yeah, if it's new, generally speaking, it's not true. That's right. That's right. right. Very good. Our next listener would like your opinion about Pastor Arnold Murray of Shepherd's Chapel in Arkansas. The pastor is on TV all the time. I don't know anything about them. You know anything about them, Rick? Not a thing. I looked at their statement of faith. Uh, Everything seems to be solid. Just this one thing that I highlighted didn't make much sense to me. We believe that Israel was promised redemption, that Jesus Christ came to Israel, that he recognized as the, that he was recognized as the redeemer of Israel, um, and his death and resurrection accomplished redemption. Accomplished that redemption. Did Uh, it accomplish that redemption? No, it didn't. And so I think he's taking a position much like uh, Pastor Hagee takes, where Pastor Hagee believes that just because you're Jewish, you're saved. And he believes that what will happen in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy is that they will simply recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. But if a Jew dies now, he doesn't die lost. All things being equal, in fairness to Hagee, that if he's a, you know, a pious Jew... And that's a wrong view of um, how God deals with Jewish people. And I'll be dealing with this, by the way, in Romans 11 as we come to it, because God deals there with the salvation of the Jewish people. So he's taking a position, this particular pastor, that I think is erroneous, and that the Bible does not teach that Jewish people are 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 um, automatically redeemed through the blood of Christ. They still have to come in genuine faith. Uh, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that whole argument in Romans 10 is in reference to Jewish people. We apply it, obviously, in a broad sense to anyone because God applies it to anyone. But in the immediate context, he's dealing with people who have heard, but they didn't respond. And it's not because they hadn't heard the message, but they did not respond in in faith uh, to Jesus Christ. All right, very good. And then uh, while we That's were... not to say anything else about his doctoral statement, because I haven't read it. Yeah, everything but, uh, else was pretty much in line. You know, he believes uh, salvation is by grace through faith. Uh, baptism is post-salvation. Okay, good. all the other elements. Good. Glad to hear that. All right. Um, while we were talking, another listener would like uh, to ask you 
when we consider prophecy, is it a sign of the end times that the Presbyterian Church USA is pulling millions of dollars of investments, $21 million in total from Caterpillar, Hewlett-Packard, and Motorola Solutions, because of their ties to the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories? Yeah, I read that article that came out, I don't know, in the last couple of weeks, about two weeks ago, uh, that the Presbyterian Church USA uh, was basically wanting to disconnect itself totally with Israel because their view of Israel. Well, again, when you go back into the origins of Presbyterianism, and there are, by the way, different kinds of Presbyterians in the United States, some that are very conservative Bible-believing, like the ARP uh, or the PCA. Those are conservative Presbyterian uh, organizations that are not like the PCUSA. 25 years ago, uh, the PCUS, which was the northern branch, they united with the southern branch and they became the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, when they united. And this is what often liberal denominations do. They start shrinking in numbers. And so to bring their numbers back up and to pool some resources so they don't, quote unquote, go out of business, uh, they, they join different branches of the same kind of liberalism into one and give itself a new name. But the Presbyterian United States of America have been ordaining men, some of whom don't even believe in the deity of Christ for over 25 years. So you don't necessarily even have to believe that Jesus is God in human flesh to be a Presbyterian pastor in our day. And this is why in the 1980s, when the final window came, uh, most of the conservative Bible-believing Presbyterians left. And there was kind of a, a, a grandfather clause in there that if you didn't leave within a certain time frame, then your properties would become fully owned by the Presbyterian church the liberal branch. And so most of the conservatives said, well, we're, we're leaving. We're not going to risk fighting any longer. We're going to leave. So somebody who's in the PCUSA is really, he's a member of an apostate denomination. And he's a member of a denomination that is sporting, su- su- supporting some very bad things, you know, like Planned Parenthood. That, you know, they're, they're in favor of a woman's so-called right to murder her baby. That's the Presbyterian Church, United States of America. They are in favor of homosexual marriage. That's the Presbyterian Church, United States of America. Now, you may meet some PCUSA pastor who personally does not embrace that. And maybe on occasion, but rare occasion, a PCUSA congregation that does not embrace that. But most of the Presbyterian pastors who were in that denomination who were worth their salt because they understood scripture departed because they knew that there is a place for separation in the new Testament. Now there are Christians who separate from other Christians over what we would consider to be secondary issues. Um, But that's unfortunate. I can have a fellowship, you know, and enjoy, you know, the presence of a PCA brother. He may have a different view on, uh, sovereign election than I do. He may have a different view on 
the unfolding of the second coming of Christ, but I can still have fellowship with him because he has the gospel and all the fundamentals of the faith, like the virgin birth and the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ and his substitutionary death as a payment for sin, making us saved by grace through faith, his literal resurrection, his literal return, the infallibility of the Bible. He believes all those things. And so we have a common basis by which we can have fellowship. And so the PCUSA denies most of those essential things. Um, And so they are an apostate denomination. And the fact that they are openly opposing Israel, I think is interesting because ultimately this is what God says is going to happen. The nations of the world are going to go against Israel. And there will be a religious body that is going to be formed. And I think it's already in its... um, in kernel form in the worldwide council of churches that is opposing Israel officially. Uh, So they say, well, you know, Israel has no right to that piece of property. They should share it. It should, there should be a two state, two capital kind of uh, scenario. Even our president in September of 2012 uh, said that we should have a two state capital in Jerusalem. Well, it's going to happen, actually, because the Bible foretells it. The prophet Zechariah, behold, a day is coming for the Lord uh, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. and The city will be captured and the houses plundered, the women ravished and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So God describes a coming time through war. When Jerusalem is going to be divided, half the city will be exiled. Uh, It's going to be split in two. That is literally going to happen. Uh, Then, the next verse says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. And when he fights on a day of battle, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. That's the second coming in the prophet Zechariah. So the fact that people are even speaking with these ideas that Jerusalem be split as a city where half of the city is under Arab control and it's the Palestinian capital and the other half is under Jewish control and it's Israel's capital. The fact that they're even speaking like that is amazing because this is what is ultimately going to happen. So my eyes are wide open as I look at Israel and I see the events that are unfolding because God used the Jewish people to bring about the first coming and he's going to use Israel to bring about the second coming of Messiah. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And you can always email us at tbl at net. If you uh, caught only part of a program uh, or wanted to listen to it again, you can always go to net or search thescriptures.org and listen to our archived The Bible Lines. You know, you just about answered the next question in total and your last answer, but uh, maybe you'd like to add, this caller is confused how born-again pastors can vary so differently on the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism. Does it make a difference if you go to a church where the pastor teaches one instead of the other? The caller knows that you have messages on this and would uh, like you to give the names of some of those messages. Well, it is a good question, and... Again, there are aspects of Arminianism and aspects of Calvinism 
that are taught in the New Testament. Calvinism is a very big word, and it encompasses much more than what is typically uh, described as election or sometimes summarized with the acrostic tulip. Um, It's a whole range of theology that actually influences and impacts every major realm of theology, not just the doctrine of salvation, but the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of end times. Every major realm of theology uh, is um, under the umbrella of Calvinism. But I'm assuming here you're using the term as it's popularly used. And that is, is that, you know, you've got Arminianism who puts the uh, emphasis on free will and you have the Calvinist that puts the emphasis on God's sovereignty. And what man tends to do is we separate them. And so we create two different camps when they're really brought together. I, I'm, I'm not an Arminian or a Calvinist. I'm a Calvinian. Uh, in that I recognize the sovereignty of God working in interplaying within the free will of man. Uh, sometimes, you know, you go to a community. I was just recently communicating with a couple in our church, a former military couple, and they moved to a town. And they said, Pastor, we're just looking for a good church. And <clears throat> we're kind of frustrated. And, you know, some of the churches, they don't open the Bible at all. We're used to Bible teaching and And we ended up going to this PCA church and they're really big on, you know, sovereign election. And it seems like that comes through all the time. And, you know, we don't buy into infant baptism and, but that appears to be the only church in town that is, you know, really evangelical and Bible believing. I'd say, well, that's probably where you need to go. Uh, you, You need to go there. You don't need to be a divisive person, but. You know, maybe that's where you need to go in, in fellowship unless God is calling you to start a new church. And sometimes God will do that. He'll get some like-minded couples together who begin to pray and they begin to share their faith. I always like it when a church grows by conversion and they don't just go steal sheep from an existing fellowship. That's not growth. If I have 50 cents in my left pocket and put it in my right pocket, I don't have any more money. I've just changed the position and that's how a lot of churches grow. They come in and they rape the community of um, of its members and who are already in good Bible-believing churches. And I tell people all the time, if you're in a good Bible-believing church, you ought to pray and support your pastor and stick in that church. And if you're not, well, then, then great. You know, find a, a good Bible-believing church where you can grow in your faith. But if you are... Don't rape the church that you're in and start stealing sheep. That's how a lot of churches grow. And if they're honest, they say there is very, very few conversions. I met with a pastor just recently, an associate pastor of a large church. And he said, you know, we're only doing about 10 baptisms a year, if that. And they're even a little bit larger than we are at Community Bible Church. And he said, we're just not winning any people to Christ. The only people we get are people who are either new to the community or they're just leaving their church that they were in because maybe the Bible's not being taught and they're not being fed where they can really grow. And uh, so they come and join our church. And so, um, again, his heart was out of an 
honest heart. He, he said, I, we really want to see this change. We, we want to see some people start coming to know Christ. And, you know, we've heard about your church and what's going on there. And what can we do differently that we're not already doing? So we talked about that. And it's a very productive time, I hope, for the kingdom of God. But um, again, sometimes the only church you have is Arminian or Calvinistic. And you have to, you know, make sure your kids have their heads screwed on straight so that if you're an Arminian church that teaches, as they all do, that you can lose your salvation, that you help your kids not to be infected by that. Because there are consequences to that kind of thinking. And interestingly, this uh, large church that I uh, was dialoguing with is very, very Calvinistic in its staff. Um, they're, They're very reformed in their doctrine. And so that, in turn, I think, has influenced the way they do evangelism. Um, And that's unfortunate. Um, So, anyway, good question. I think we have a live caller, so let's go there. We do. And uh, for the second part of that question, would you recommend they listen to maybe the first few messages in Romans 9 that you preach? That would be good, or possibly just go to the Back to Basics series. And uh, the very first um, message... And there's a handout that goes with it. And I think I covered it under three different weeks, but it's one handout. And it's called Eternal Security and Assurance of Salvation. And the two are distinct. Arminians can believe that you can have assurance of salvation, but not be eternally secure. Um, And so the Bible teaches not only can I be assured that I know I'm saved right now, but I can know I'm saved 30 years from now or until the day Christ takes me, I am eternally secure. So I kind of go through that in some of the verses that people use to say you can lose salvation and so on. And all that information can be found at searchthescriptures.org. Let's go to our live caller now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. I'm sorry. Good morning. Um, First of all, I want to say that I am a member of Community Bible Church, and I thank God every day for the teaching that we get from Pastor Brogy and Pastor Bennett. Um, But my question is, with cremation, what does the Bible say about cremation? And I I ask that because of all the questions we're having on the second coming and the rapture, and I'm just wondering what happens if people have been cremated. Well, if a person is cremated, and it's a good question, it doesn't affect, of course, what is going to happen at the resurrection. Some people are, quote-unquote, cremated, not because they want to, uh, be cremated, but because uh, they were, their bodies were burned in a fire or, or maybe their bodies were lost at sea and the fish ate them and there's absolutely zero left. And, and ultimately, of course, if a person's left in the ground long enough, uh, they can, you know, obviously uh, turn literally back to dust through the processes that we use in our day. The body can be, be preserved for a really long time. But in the resurrection, it has no net effect. But the question really is, should we as Christians practice cremation? And my simple answer would be no. And I have a whole message on this. It's in my series in Genesis. And uh, if you click on Genesis um, chapter 25, I deal with three funerals in that particular uh, section of Scripture, or three people who die. And if you go back and listen to that message, um, I I deal with the subject of cremation. But let me just give you the brief answer. You know, interestingly, because we live in a day when the Bible is no longer being taught, uh, more and more people are cremating their loved ones. 
in America, the whole process of cremation started by the Unitarian Church. The Unitarians were a group of people who, on all the fundamentals of the faith, they rejected. Um, so they didn't believe in the Bible to be the infallible, inerrant word of God. Uh, they taught and most still teach what's called annihilationism. That is, when you die and your body's dropped in a grave, that's the end of it. Uh, your body, soul, and spirit, you just cease to exist. And so in defiance of the doctrine of the resurrection, Unitarians began to burn the bodies. And they'd say, see, let's see your God resurrected that. <laughs> Well, again, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, the opening verse in the Bible, you can believe any verse in the Bible. And that's why that's under such attack in our day. So it was really a heathen practice, and it's still a heathen practice in many parts of the world. I was in India a few months ago, and within a matter of hours after death, they, they burned that baby alive. I mean, there's nothing left of that body. It's over. Um, and it's, an, it's associated in places like Second Kings 16 with, with heathenism. Um, and so in the scripture, fire is many times just a picture of God's judgment, not a promise of life. Not exclusively, but very often it is. And so God gave us a pattern in scripture as to what we should do. It is assumed in the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that God's people will bury their loved ones that they will not cremate them. And so Paul uses the illustration of burying your loved one as a picture of the coming resurrection. He said, just like you take a, a seed that seems to be dead and you put it into the ground, but life comes from it. Even so we plant the body in the ground with a sense of expectation or hope that life will come, that God will raise that body up. And so in the word of God, every child of God is always buried. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were buried. Uh, that's what God's intention was. You come into the New Testament, John the Baptist was buried. Christ, he was in a rented tomb, so to speak, for a short period of time. He didn't need a long-term tomb, but even he was buried until he rose from the dead. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, both believers, they were buried. When God himself performs a funeral, if cremation was the ideal suggested way, then don't you think God himself would, uh, himself, uh, when Moses dies and they're up there alone on top of Mount Nebo, wouldn't you expect God to cremate the guy? No. And, and I say that even knowing that there's going to be a dispute over Moses's body. It seems like that would eliminate the dispute altogether. Now, that's not something we learn in Deuteronomy 34, but we learn in the book of Jude that Michael the archangel had a dispute over the devil concerning the body of Moses. Why, why even have a dispute? Just burn them. But no, that's not what happens. It says, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he he, the antecedent going back to Yahweh, the Lord, and he, Yahweh, buried him in the valley. So when God performs a funeral, he does it by burial, and that's what we should do. And just practically speaking, as a pastor, and I don't care that it costs a little more money. You know, there's a lot of uh, funeral costs that you don't have to incur. You know, people buy a four, five, six thousand dollar box 
you can buy them online through Costco, next day shipping. Uh, you can ask the funeral director, well, I know you got something cheaper. It's just not out here in the showroom. And he can sell you a box for $700. And it's just pine, and it's usually uh, has felt stapled to the outside. And if you're embarrassed, cover it with the Christian flag, or if the person's a veteran, say, with the American flag. Um, but you don't have to spend a lot of money. And you can do it far more inexpensively, but without a body at the funeral, your funeral has lost a lot of punch and a lot of power. But when the body is there, physically present, there is an opportunity to preach the gospel. And people see visibly the reality of death. And God wants to use your funeral, your last will and testament, to possibly bring some people to Christ. Some families, the only time they get together, everybody, is when there's a wedding or there's a funeral. I did my brother, preached my own brother's funeral last year. And there were some relatives I've been praying for for years, but we just never connected. They were all there, every single one of them at my brother's funeral. And I preached the gospel and gave some of them the plan of salvation. So anyway, uh, be buried. Don't cremate. All right, very good. Five two five one eight five nine. Actually, we really only have time for one more question. I think you can probably answer this in one word. A caller would like to know what a Christian should do if their pastor does not believe or teach that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Does it matter if they attend such a church? I'd leave tomorrow. I would leave tomorrow. It's pastors like that that are destroying America, and they're so slick. Because, you know, the Cooperative Baptist's new strategy, because they deny biblical infallibility, is they'll have on their website, 2 Timothy 3.16, we believe all scripture is given by inspiration of God. They just have a different definition of the word inspiration. They do not believe the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of God. And, you know, we, we talk about all these moral issues going on today. Let's say like homosexual marriage. The problem is not homosexual marriage. The problem is an issue of an authority. Is the Bible God's inerrant, infallible, final word? Is it absolutely true? If it is, then we wouldn't be having this debate because God hasn't, you know, spoken in unclear terms. He's spoken emphatically. It's not that Paul was some homo homophobic person that we need to, you know, hey, Get over there in the corner, Paul. You know, you just you just didn't understand this. No, he spoke the word of God as if God himself had lips and a tongue and you could literally hear his voice. You are literally hearing the voice of God Almighty on the pages of Holy Scripture. So when you have a pastor who denies biblical inerrancy, you're supporting a cause that is wicked. You're supporting a cause that is seeding into the minds of the children and the teenagers of that church, gross error that may end up leading some of those people to hell. So there is a place to separate on some issues. This is not like the prior question versus Arminianism, Calvinism, and you've got a pastor who has a different view on which side we should emphasize. We're, we're talking about one of the non-negotiable fundamentals of the Christian faith. And if you um, want to hear a message on it, you might want to listen to my message on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You can go to searchthescriptures.org, click on 2 Timothy, click on the passage that deals with that. And among other things, I deal with Jesus's view of inspiration. He believed the Bible 
was absolutely true in every word right down to the tenses. And I'm going to believe what Jesus believed. You have a great day. May you walk with Christ.